0: Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Snejana Lawrence, author of A New Year's Present from a Mathematician, published by CRC Press this year, 2020. This is a collection of 12 historical vignettes that span Europe across five centuries of mathematical exchange, plus a jump back one millennium, which we'll get to, Rather than recap only the most recognizable names, Dr. Lawrence also spotlights a range of types of mathematicians by their stations in life and by how they engage with their mathematical communities. Indeed, the diverse and sometimes improbable channels through which mathematical knowledge is transmitted are essential to these stories as the practitioners who do the transmitting and receiving. The book is a delightful mix of historiography, mathematics, and often poetic narration, not to mention glossy-paged and, appropriately, gift-sized, And I'm glad to be able to talk with the author as we approach the new year. Snejana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Corey. Delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you. To begin, could you describe your own mathematical background and how you became inspired to write this book?
1: Okay, so um, my first degree was actually in architecture and engineering. Uh, And when I came to England, um, I wanted to do a little bit of teaching of geometry, which was which I was incredibly good at, uh, and I was sort of thinking of how I can employ um geometry that I learned, and I did at the university back in uh, old yugoslavia and um to my surprise, I discovered that um geometry is actually taught quite differently uh in in different countries, and that was the really the the start of my Historical journey through mathematics. So I realized that although you know mathematics is a universal language, it is not necessarily. It does not necessarily have all the poems and and books in <laughs> in each culture. Um, um, and so I started really doing then the history of mathematics uh, as you know my became my focus, and I started doing PhD here in England um so i'm i call myself a historian of mathematics rather than mathematician um and um through my through my book you will see also that I have a bit of a um take on that as well you know how people perceive themselves the the types of mathematics they do and how they they sort of how very few people
0: call themselves themselves mathematicians. <laughs> Yeah, I'd actually like to uh, get into that a bit. Um, In the context of whom your book is intended for and what readership you had in mind, um, you do explicitly tie uh, this question of who identifies as a mathematician into your introduction. And it resonated with me personally in that it was several years after completing my PhD that I started dropping the qualifier aspiring from the way I would describe myself as a mathematician. So could you talk a bit more about uh, your intended audience and and that notion of of perception of oneself as a mathematician
1: yes, so so I think there are lots of um there are lots of uh, preconceptions about what mathematicians are like and what do they do and what mathematics is as a field, as a discipline. And so people do find it i find i find I found through to the experience um, that a few, People find it very difficult to identify themselves as mathematicians. So, I think I give an example where at a conference where there was about, I don't know, uh, more than 50 people in a room. And when I asked who here is a mathematician, it was a mathematical conference I might have had. Only three people said, you know, put their hands up. And I was like, well, what what are the rest of you doing? You know, this is a mathematics conference. Um, And likewise, I think from the outside, from the people, from, 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 a view of mathematics and mathematicians from people who are not actually involved in mathematics. They 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 sort of have these visions of mathematics, basically mainly to be dealing with number. You know, if you can count or calculate quickly, you know that that is mathematics, or and that is what mathematician is like and nerdy person and and so on, and um. Over the years, I felt that that really is—it um, can be very funny to engage with those images, and it can be such a quite you know nice and funny to sort of think about them. But actually, it does mathematics quite a lot of damage, particularly in terms of education. Um, so my book was inten- is intended for the audi- audience who is um, for people who want to learn a little bit more about mathematics. So there are some mathematical sort of terms there and, and concepts, and I think um, I was pleased that one of the reviewers um, of the book said, you know, that he is a mathematician, and he sort of found it very good, that he found things there that was that 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 he didn't know about. So, um, so that is important to me as well, but it is also intended for the audience. Um, For for the person who wants to know a little bit more about what mathematicians are like as people, just as normal people.
0: So I I sort of trace that um, journey. And so let's get into the journey. Your tour, as you call it, departs from the Library of Alexandria. So could you say a bit about its significance to the histories you're telling and its role in the metaphorical journey of the book?
1: Yes so so it starts with the uh, Library of Alexandria because um, there is quite actually a lot of um, looking back towards ancient Greece or ancient Greek culture and Greek mathematics throughout the book. so it's scattered throughout you know the the sort of um, concepts and 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 mention of people um, go throughout the book. Um, so I thought it really needs to sort of start from there. Uh, but it also starts from there because symbolically when we start learning mathematics you know people usually sort of think about that you know everything starts with Greece and then it goes on <laughs> uh, in the historical um, uh, development um, and also it, it is also it's it's about um, the this dissemination of knowledge and about the influences cultures have on each other uh, and how um, Important Greek, ancient Greek mathematics has been for the development of mathematics. So there, there, there is a thread there also in the concept in concepts that I discuss throughout the book.
0: And actually, it's not long before you delve into some of the ancient Greek mathematics and how it was transmitted further forward in time. Um, we have time to def- discuss a few of your vignettes, and I- I'd like to begin in February. Okay, this. This month, you celebrate the completion of uh, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople in 532. The cathedral was designed by Anthemius of Trallis and Isidore of Miletus. And you explore how both of these architect mathematicians built upon work that was already ancient by their time. So could we talk through them both in turn?
1: Yes, so Anthemius uh, of um was really quite an important mathematician of his time, and he also studied. Um, we we can't be actually hundred percent sure for quite a lot of the things that we are um, from from ancient uh, ancient mathematics. But so we can't be hundred percent sure that he um, he produced this sort of collection of Archimedean um, works. Uh, but he obviously was very knowledgeable in the ancient Greek mathematics. Um, and we need to sort of just go a little bit... Um, I need to mention that, for example, um, Anthemius uh, of, of Trallis uh, lived uh, lived and built, um, worked on that cathedral, uh, Hagia Sophia, um, in the 6th century AD. Um, and the mathematics he drew upon, uh, some of it came from the 5th century BC, so it's quite quite a long, you know, range um, of mathematics that he was obviously aware of. Um, so he 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 was he built on uh, the knowledge and the works of Archimedes. So one of his treatises that has been rediscovered in the eighteenth century uh, treats um, uh, the the question of the burning mirrors. Okay. And so that, that's one of the most famous, um, questions, uh, from antiquity, uh, did Archimedes really built, build these, uh, burning mirrors, you know, in theory, they should work, but ha, 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 had he really built them and did they actually work? Um, and that question reappears and reappears and, you know, the popular, even popular television programs, you know, have been in the past couple of decades. And, um. So, so Antimius um, probably uh, wrote this uh, thesis on the burning mirrors and, and he was a bit of a trickster, so he knew quite a lot of applied mathematics. So I sort of opened that chapter with a trick he, he played on his neighbor, but I won't, I, I won't explain that, you know, people will need to read it. <laughs>
0: sure, you can read it.
1: Okay, so he was a bit of a trickster and he applied, he, he was interested in, obviously, applied mathematics, particularly for this purpose of, of building this fantastic dome um, of uh, Sophia. Um, his collaborator, um, Isidore Miletus, um, comes from a very famous place, which is Miletus in, it's now in, it's now in uh, it's now in, uh in sorry, Turkey, but it used to be you know part of the uh, Greek kind of uh, culture, um, and he uh, worked with Anthemius on. He also knew quite a lot of ancient mathematics because where he comes from, uh, we have some some of the most famous mathematicians and um, uh, philosophers uh, from ancient Greece. Again, there is you know huge range between. Them and uh, Isidore, uh, but he was obviously aware of, of the work that he built upon.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot that comes out of this of this um, this vignette or this chapter that I appreciated the the distances through which um, mathematical collaboration and heritage are transmitted, even in the absence of a continuity there. So you mentioned that Isidore was almost certainly aware. Of the heritage of his location in the his, in the ancient history of mathematics, and drew upon that. I don't remember how you put it. I'm sorry, but drew upon that um, that heritage in his um, in his aspirations in his work, as well as of course upon the the works that he directly uh, the mathematical works that he directly drew from.
1: That's right. Yes, so Miletus was a very famous. Um, uh, uh, there was a, it's a famous philosophical school, really, uh, from, from ancient Greece. Um, and um, there, there are uh, people like Thales of Miletus, which is uh, arguably one of the first really um, mathematicians uh, from ancient Greece that, that, that is still um, really studied, I suppose, uh, for his contribution to mathematics. Apparently, his advice... Uh, Was know thyself, which was engraved on the front uh, facade of the temple of Apollo in Delphi, Um, and and he was one of the Thales was one of the seven sages uh, of um, ancient Greece, which is another you know uh, um, it's not really a myth it's it's a story about the seven wisest men. So I suppose we are in in the period of the three wise men, but these are uh, seven. Wise, wise, very wise men from the period before Christ. You know, uh, around the fifth and sixth century BC.
0: I'm sorry, you have to remind me. Um, Thales is, has several theorems attributed to him, which might be called Thales' theorem. Was was one of these instrumental in the design of Hagia Sophia?
1: Yes, so so he, that's right. So Thales was very um, um, important for really having these. Theorems, uh, which were transmitted uh, through ancient Greek mathematics, and um, there were quite a few, quite a few, quite a quite a lot of work actually from uh, Greek mathematics went into designing that uh, famous dome and and the uh, um, um, of Hagia Sophia. So, for example. Um, Uh, Anthemius is also known as the first person to describe uh, a method of drawing an ellipse. Um, And he sort of uses, uh, in his uh, treatise that I mentioned, he uses a Thales uh, theorem, uh, which is now, you you can actually place it within Euclid's uh, 13 books. Um, And it's a a book two uh, theorem, six um so i'm not going to read it to you because otherwise it's uh, you know <laughs> right but uh yes it, it was an important um um knowledge they also used uh, archimedes circle approximations um or really the the uh, approximations of pi uh for the construction of the dome because uh, yes Yeah.
0: So, capping think, a circular roof on a rectangular or square shaped that's uh, right. foundation.
1: That's right, yes. So, they had to, yes, exactly. So, it's almost like uh, squaring a circle bit. So,
0: right.
1: <laughs> <and> they, had, <laughs> they had to be quite precise um, in, um, in exact, uh, you know, executing that um, mathematical kind of concept. Um.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also always worth remembering that even someone like Euclid pooled together the results that many results that were already known in his time. As opposed to writing whole cloth a geometry textbook that became the define the definition of geometry for centuries following.
1: That's right. Yes. So so exactly. So the, the collection of, of um, Euclid's uh, Elements is a collection of all mathematics known at the time. Really, you know, he wasn't necessarily the author. Um, it, it was just an organization of mathematical knowledge in a certain way.
0: So, jumping ahead from May the month of May, which is your fifth chapter. I should have mentioned earlier, the chapters are arranged by month. Mm. You celebrate the birth of Maria Maria Agnesi? Yes, that's right, Agnesi. Yep. In 1718. So to put Agnesi's life and work in some societal context, I think you do very well by discussing this popular math book by Francesco Algarotti. Yes. So I hope you pr- would provide a bit of that context here.
1: Yes. So uh, Agnesi <clears throat> is an interesting person for me. Um, because she's seen such an independent and um, uh, obviously incredibly talented mathematician. And um, she was actually the first woman to hold the chair in mathematics, although I believe she never actually took it up, you know, she never actually went and taught uh, people. Uh, but she grew up in Milan, um, and her father uh, sort of really used. His children he, she had another sister who were very knowledgeable um, in all um, in, in languages in mathematics in music and he, he, their father uh, organized salons around uh, their sort of performances you know so they would recite and they would talk in different languages and um, and so on um, so from a very early age uh, she really she spoke. Many languages. She knew many languages, and she um, she studied um, then modern mathematics, um, and and uh, she wrote a very famous book, uh, which was Italian translation of Newton's um, uh, Principia, uh, which is still uh, which is still used, uh, really. But what is interesting is that her mathematics was. Um, Really, very obviously, you know, authentic. But also, she knew her stuff. Whereas Algarotti comes as uh, one of the beau esprits of his time. He was a sort of very well uh, connected, um, from a very sort of uh, 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 in England, we would say, posh backgrounds. Uh-
0: <laughs> I think I think posh resonates in the US too. Yeah,
1: that's right. And um, he traveled. Traveled around Europe, uh, made friends with, made friends with um, uh, aristocracy and very famous people. Um, Frederick the Great um, gave, gave him a title, um, and, and he beca- even became a Prussian um, count. Um, and he published a, a popular book, Newtonianism for Ladies. And what was interesting for me was that that book became incredibly popular and it was translated into English. I mean, it was—it actually was written um, in Italian, um, and it was translated into English, and it became very, very, very popular, whereas Maria um, Agnesi's work, which was really original translation and could be used for the study of mathematics, didn't really have such a great success uh, at the time. You know, it, it did survive all the other um, uh, later kind of... Um, use is an addition. So it, it tells a story a little bit about popular uh, and what is acceptable, what people perceive um, as a sort of popular kind of mathematics. Um, and and so he, he he had the great success during his lifetime. Uh, but it is also slightly annoying for me, which I think you probably find uh, when you read it, uh, that he sort of adopts this uh, patronizing uh, voice towards women and that I found it very funny. Because there 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 was Nessie who really did proper mathematics and and there is this amateur who's sort of taking you know, who's patronizing people who study or women particularly who study mathematics. He's trying to make mathematics or physics rather, um, um easier so that women can understand it.
0: Yeah, even as you recognize his good intentions, I think that story also Resonates with some of our experiences in the present day, that's with respect right. to whose mathematical work gets accepted for having for its own original quality, and whose gets accepted for its commentary on the rest of math, the rest of uh, the community's mathematical work. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I'd like to dig a little bit more into Agnesi herself. Um, you mentioned her many her multilingualism at a young age, um, and her focused on mathematics education, she was also an advocate for education and incorporated some of these ideas into her book and is also known for having written a treatise in her youth uh, about, I believe, access of women's education.
1: That's right, yes. So so she was a great advocate uh, throughout her life, really, of women's rights. You know, when when we look at it now, uh, it probably doesn't appear so kind of revolutionary. But if you if you think about the time uh, when women weren't accepted really to even go to universities, let alone to teach you know for her to be able to write translate uh, mathematics and to get a first chair in mathematics um, and and she was very much dedicated to the to the causes of women uh, later on in her life uh, she became she, she really gave up Mathematics altogether, and became um, a full-time theologian, uh, and worked in um, uh, direct worked as a director of the hospice for women, uh, which was a hospice for women who were really quite unfortunate um, uh, in uh, in Milan. So I think you know there is a, a whole um, whole other dimension to her life. Which is not necessarily obvious. Um, so I, I wanted really to to give her a little bit of um, to il- illuminate that kind of side of her life because that was, I think, very important.
0: And yeah, if I may say, and um, the book is very good at humanizing its characters beyond, well, beyond in many cases their mathematical contributions.
1: Uh, good, thank you. <laughs> yes, I think, so, and also uh, what what I found really quite funny is that so so this is a, you know this is a, one of the one of the very lone women in mathematical landscape of the times. Uh, she tr- translates Newton very, very well and, and adds um, some original contributions and some contributions from Italian mathematicians. Um, so she mentions this, um, she, she uh, talks uh, about this um, curve, which, she, which she, she called La Versiera, Uh, but which later on was translated into English as the witch of Agnesi. Um, And that itself also sort of tells a little bit about uh, the perception of women mathematicians, I thought, (laughs) that anyone would actually have that as a thought, that someone would call that the curve witch.
0: Um, Oh, that's a good point. So how likely is it that someone's, curve would be mistranslated as a witch if they weren't a woman mathematician.
1: Yes, that's right. Exactly.
0: So jumping ahead to July, uh, you mark the birth of John Dee in 1527, and your hook in this chapter that he was the inspiration for uh, Shakespeare's character Prospero was new to me. So could you briefly profile Dee, uh, his personality, his interests, and of course his betrayal? Yes.
1: So these incredibly Interesting for me. I also didn't know that um, he was uh, most likely used as a model for Shakespearean um, play, The Tempest. I found that out when I was doing a project with teachers um, and we had to do something. Um, th- this was about two decades ago, I think now. Uh, we, uh, the teachers had to connect various uh, subjects that they were going to teach. So they had to connect English and um, in England, you know, Shakespeare is studied quite uh, studiously still. And so they had to, con- somehow they had to connect Shakespeare with science and mathematics. And I really, you know, I was a bit stuck, I'm afraid. So I, I, I came upon Tempest because I thought that would be very good for science as well. But then I realized, um, I, found, I came across several references that actually. Uh, D was used as a model for his um, Prospero. Um, and so um, yes, D, D is, a, is a fascinating personality really. Um, his view of mathematics is absolutely enchanting, I think. Um, his um, preface to um, the first English, uh, first edition of Euclid's Elements in English Language. Um, is a very famous, really now, uh, preface. You know, you can you can buy a preface itself uh, without <laughs> without the uh, the rest of the book. Um, and he sort of saw mathematics as a such a diverse field. Um, I, I recommend everyone actually to have a look at um, to to sort of look on the internet and find uh, the what he called ground plat. Uh, which is a scheme schema of his um, uh, view of mathematics as a field, where he structures various disciplines, uh, various sub-disciplines of mathematics. And quite a lot of them are um, applied, um, which is another sort of thing that I'm really interested in. Um, and his betrayal, it's quite strange, because he seemed to have had premonition, but nevertheless went into it. <laughs> Uh so he uh went with his he had a very good friend. D, D was by the way, he was quite a mystic. Um he used to draw um he used to draw um char- charts and sort and, and of try to predict um sort of astrologically um things that will happen. Um and um, but he, you know, that is only one really facet of him, and that also has a mathematical kind of meaning that I'll come to at the end. But um, yes, he seemed to have had the premonition of his books being burnt, and wrote about it in one of his diaries, which I found fascinating. And um, he uh, he went with a friend of his, uh, Edward Kelly, to. Europe with that they they took their wives as well with them and Edward Kelly I'm afraid persuaded him that they should swap the wives Um, and I think that really broke the (laughs) that really broke him and he he came back from Europe by the time he came back from Europe um, he um, he found that his library has been ransacked Um, quite a lot of the things from his um, collection were lost, and they were lost for you know quite a long time. A couple of years ago, maybe four or five years now, um, there was exhibition of the of his uh, items from his collection and his books um, in London, which was fantastic. But you know, there's still there's still you know that whole library was really dissipated. So his friends and students just went in the house and held themselves, it seems.
0: So you mentioned that Dee uh, was a mystic um, and also that he was fascinated by um, the order and role of different mathematical disciplines with respect to each other. This is something else I've found fascinating in the past and done a little bit of scientometric work on the the literature of mathematics. Um, As you say, Dee understood mathematics as a bridge between Um, the so-called natural and supernatural phenomena, as he would say at the time. And this comes out in his classification scheme, as you detail in the book. And so I'm interested if you could expand on this division as Dee understood it, and whether you see a through line uh, to to our present-day classification schemes, in particular, perhaps the way we think of pure as opposed to applied mathematics.
1: Yes, yes. I think, I think that that sort of division still remains quite, quite a lot. I think people doing applied mathematics um, are considered sort of slightly different by the people doing pure mathematics still. You know, you can see that in social sort of mathematical structures as well. Um, I don't know globally um, how valid that is, but I know in, in UK there is a reasonable distinction between, you know, Pure and applied mathematicians, but actually, to me, it, it really you know is, is fascinating because I obviously that is and that is another thing that I can see uh, perhaps as an outsider because my view wasn't like that at all. <laughs> um, but what 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 I particularly like about D is his description of mathematics, as you say, as a medium uh, between studying um, these supernatural phenomena. So that is how he describes supernatural phenomena as something which is hidden, uh, where you have to un- understand the patterns, um, you know, of the hidden sort of forces and things. Uh, whereas the natural, and so that he says, you know, so that, that sort of that is the field um, of supernatural sort of studies, of which he obviously was quite fond, and then. Um, there are natural things, material, compounded, divisible, corruptible, and changeable. So that is the study of nature. Um, and then in between those, he places mathematics, and he places mathematics with with within its old branch, with all all branches that he sort of uh, mentions. Um, I found it actually. I found uh, there was a book a couple of years ago on sale, um, which had some kind of um um uh his his notes on the on the uh against the front frontispiece where he started drawing the um he started drawing the uh description of the the division of mathematics so originally it was much smaller um you know then the, the final sort to Grand Platte had many, many more branches there.
0: So an early version of his, of his introduction where that's he presents this classification. To that's Leroy. right, yes. Yeah. And so following up, one of the most prolific mathematical writers was, and this will be a challenge for me, Jean-Baptiste Leronde d'Alembert. Yes, yes. Whom you remember on the anniversary of his death in October 1783 like d two centuries prior d'Alembert was a central player in the organization of mathemat- mathematical knowledge of his time so could you talk first about his contributions to the encyclopedia and perhaps what the encyclopedia was at that time
1: yes so i found actually uh, inspiration to write about him and to look at his life a little bit more because um he, 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 although he knew who later on who his parents were, he was left on the steps of a church in Paris uh, when he was born, um, and the famous novel by Victor Hugo, uh, Notre Dame de Paris, which was written in um, uh, which in eighteen thirties uh, describes that um, uh, describes that sort of event in a way. Um, so he uh, became very knowledgeable uh, and, and uh, in quite a lot of uh, subjects and contributed to um, uh, Encyclopédie, uh, which was the first really encyclopédie uh, in the world which contained contributions from different people. Um, there, were, there were other similar projects, but they were written usually by one person. Before that. So, this is the first one uh, where different people contributed uh, only in the areas of knowledge that they felt they had, you know, they they were good at, um, rather than sort of pretending that they know everything. Uh, So, he wrote um, with uh, Diderot, uh, who was one of the, um, uh, Dennis Diderot, who was the co editor with D'Alembert. <clears throat> Sorry, and they wrote something like seventy, almost seventy-two thousand articles for the encyclopedia, which is quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, um, it appears that D'Alembert wrote about five five thousand pages of mathematics uh, for this uh, book, and to me, that sort of seemed like a huge number. And even if he wasn't, he he's not necessarily. Actually, considered a great mathematician uh, because his contributions were not, you know, uh, hugely important. But the amount of uh, mathematics that he wrote and was knowledgeable in, to me, was um, quite considerable and, and definitely deserved mention. But also, I was—I I, really—I must say that um, I was interested in him only, be, uh, not only because of that, but also because of his life. Uh, and because of his uh, view of the fourth dimension. So that was the first view that uh, I have found a French or any sort of modern European or uh, American mathematician mention. Um, so he, 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 in one of his articles, he, he describes a fourth dimension um, as a possibility. And I thought that is quite important, actually. Um, but he you know
0: he was the first to sort of tackle it like it's like well, let's let's consider it now, was this in the context of physical time or was this in the context of mathematical abstraction?
1: It was in the um, it was in the context of uh, physical time, so yes, a time span um to be described as a phys- as a,
0: as a fourth dimension alongside the three dimensions space. of space of space then. that's right, yes right. yeah. So actually, I wanted to segue into this note into this higher uh, dimensional geometry topic um, that d'Alembert was working in because it was in in, the, in a similar way I think to d'Alembert, who was not known nowadays as a great mathematician and who grew up from what I assume must have been considered humble beginnings. Um, the area he was working in was at the time relatively open to professional and amateur mathematicians alike. So, it seems appropriate that he would be playing a lead role in the writing of the encyclopedia, and it seems appropriate to include him as a role in your book. And I was interested if you could speak specifically to his study of character, where he tried to outline principles governing good character in a, sim- in a similar way to he organized principles of science.
1: Yes, I, I found that quite fascinating, actually. So, he. Um... He's, uh, one of one of the things when you look at dalembert and if you try to find things about him one of the things that that comes as striking is his um, por- por- portraits of dalembert i mean he appears to be really quite a, quite a happy and lucky kind of person you know quite a lot of the images of mathematicians are you have a sort of a frowny kind of character looking at you from the other side but D'Alembert is always smiley and and happy and and sort of happy, um, and he looked at um, really he looked at the the he he start, tried to study the principles of life, um, and one of the things he found uh, within this kind of more philosophical work uh, was that he said that the the only safe kind of harbour. Uh, for a person is to keep changing. So he understood that change, uh, which which to me was incredibly modern, um, and um, and he also described what happiness uh, is, um, that it, that can only be found if a person is able to see the world just as it is, um, to learn how it works, and to always maintain the balance between his own interests interests and also fulfilling the duty to hum- humanity and those to me are really very sort of true principles I, I really liked i wanted to sort of mention that because um usually we sort of try to romanticize to, to sort of make things easier for us uh, but he said you know no to sort of see it as it is learn how it works and do your duty And i think that is quite a lesson actually from mathematics
0: and so Actually, to follow up on that, and you don't put it in quite these terms in the book, but Johannes Kepler comes across to me as an exemplar of Gallenberg's principle of balance, as you just articulated it. And you can tell me if you think that's fair. Um, For one, he famously accepted that his nested polyhedral model of the cosmos did not hold up to the evidence that planets traced elliptical orbits, which came through at his time, um, and which you discuss in the book. But in this final chapter uh, on December, you showcase more of his creativity than I had been familiar with. So I'd also be interested if you could say a bit about his proto-science fiction story, The Dream.
1: The Dream, yeah. So that is fantastic. Uh, fantastic story. I really, um, when I came across it, I couldn't believe it. You know, And as most people, I think if you come across it, you think, um, you may think, Gosh, this is, uh, you know, was he a mystic? I mean, he was a very religious person as well. Um, and, um, but his mother was accused of witchcraft um, in 1617. And uh, a very unlikely result uh, of those trials, uh, Kepler stood in her defense and actually they managed to, you know, manage to free her. Um, which I understand wasn't the usual sort of uh, result of uh, the witch, witch trials. Um, so in, in his book, The Dream, uh, The Somnium, um, he describes um, this young person who goes around uh, the universe, flies around the universe with his mother. And... Um, and it's and sort of you know it is it, it is called a dream so it happens in in a dream but actually it it's pretty realistically described and they go on this adventure to see how the the solar system works uh, and his mother is really you know portrayed as really a little bit quite witchy I suppose so I, th- I thought gosh when I came across this I, I thought um wow, you know. Who knows? Um, but then I read a little bit more about it, and I, I um, saw that actually he started writing uh, something, a record of, he, 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 he was considering what would the solar system work, uh, look like if you could stand on the moon? So what would, it, what would the planet Earth look like in the solar system? What would it look like by someone who can stand on the moon rather than as we are standing on the Earth? Um, So he was really starting up from a completely different premise to write this story. But then the witchcraft trials took place. And my my hunch is that he had a lot of fun um, describing this and adding this sort of supernatural element to his story uh, because there were people who believed that his mother is a witch and, and sort of it's, a, it's a take on that as well as the actual little bit of a science fiction, uh, well, some call it the first science fiction novel uh, in the West. Um, and I think he, he te- took a particular pleasure in sort of bringing the two together. There's one uh, line I'll, I'll read to you from, from that novel. Uh, While my mother lived, she would not let me write she warned of evil men who reviled the hidden arts because their dull minds could not grasp them, who spread lies and made laws that harmed the human race. And I found that quite sort of telling, really, that how he married um, this experience that he had with his mother, that he had to um, defend her and, and 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 this little novel. The novel wasn't actually published during his lifetime, so he never published it, so it was published later after he died, yeah, it,
0: it seems wholly consistent with the tradition of science fiction to have to for it to be very rich in societal commentary. That's right, yes, exactly. So, your book's title and its cover are both inspired by Kepler's treatise on snowflakes. That's right. This is a wonderful story, and so uh, I'd like you to talk about a bit about how Kepler was inspired to write this treatise and what work it it has inspired since.
1: Yes, so Kepler um, was living in uh, he, he 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 was living in Prague at a time, um, and he made uh, good friends with um, uh, I think it was a prince uh, in Prague, Wackenfels. Uh, <laughs> um, Kepler himself was born on the twenty seventh of December, so I imagine that he had received a present from from this patron of his, um, and th- that he was thinking how to return the favour. Um, by all accounts, he was actually a very good friend and and sort of person, uh, and obviously I think his you know his morals and and sort of uh, that you can sort of see through his. For example, that, that little book, Dream, um, come across quite uh, clearly. So um, going home from uh, from seeing his friend, he was thinking of what to write for his friend. And, and he knew that his friend um, didn't really want anything. And he mentions that at the beginning of this little treatise. So i would imagine the 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 conversation went between them something like well what shall i give you and the the, the this person this his friend said nothing you know i i i love nothing you know um that is one explanation the other explanation could be that he actually said i like space you know i don't like anything you know i, I just like emptiness the, the think about space and so kepler um, was going home it was a very um Snowy night, which in Prague is quite often around that that time of year, and um, and he looked at the snowflakes and he thought, why are all the snowflakes of a particularly sim- of a similar shape? So he, he wrote a, a a treatise on that, which is absolutely beautiful and which set out quite a lot of sort of things, the mathematical concepts that only recently have been um, confirmed. Um, uh, in in, sort of in the 20th century really.
0: So here you're talking about one of these is very famous, the sphere packing or circle packing um, the circle packing theorem I guess and the sphere packing conjecture for a long time. That's right and the, and the honeycomb conjecture. Right, could you distinguish those two because I was new to, the, to that distinction actually.
1: Okay, so the honeycomb conjecture is—it is about well—it's—it's—it relates to the, the it relates to the sphere packing, but it's not exactly the same. So it is about the honeycombs. It really treats it, it goes from—it um, uh, looks at the hexagonal hexagonal structure of the honeycomb and sort of um, discusses um, um, what is the best way to divide the surface. Uh, into regions of equal area with the least total perimeter. Um, so that's a bit of a, just, the, the, the take is different. Mathematics is almost the same, but you're sort of
0: looking at um, yeah, different aspects of that. So wrapping up our discussion of the book, your comments, or sorry, your chapters are, as much histories of ideas and their transmission as they are histories of people. And it strikes me that each one can be read as a case study and how scholars synthesize ideas and communicate ideas. Was this a conscious part of how you selected these scenes for inclusion?
1: Um, yes. I'm not actually sure how it happened, to be honest. I wanted to take people on a journey. And uh, when I started thinking about that journey, I sort of structured it in in different layers i think so it turned out that actually quite a lot of people have different um you know they're doing different mathematics but they also sort of have something similar i think um they're sort of my type of people for one re- reason or another so i looked at them as, as being friends on this journey so i learned more about them um and 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 that is really what I want to do. I want to take people on, on this journey so that they can they can learn about these people as people um, whilst also seeing what mattered to them most because that is one of the I suppose the, the, the biggest questions you know why do people do mathematics? They don't do it you know you know for any particular reason other than it is so important you have to do it. And I think that is what I really wanted to show.
0: And so while I didn't touch upon them in most of my questions, but throughout the book, in addition to geometric figures to describe some of the theorems or ideas that that these these, these individuals are dealing with, you include photographs of memorials, uh, other landmarks, reproductions of key documents, reproductions of artwork. And I wanted to be sure to ask you about the importance of artifacts to our understanding of mathematics and its history.
1: Yes um yes yeah, so it, it it came naturally really because that is it is part of that landscape um it is i wanted to really make it almost like a film you know a sort of imaginary film for people to open a door a crack and sort of look at the the scene you know, and for each month there is a little scene painted for them about mathematics about the people. Uh, and about the artifacts, and I think artifacts are incredibly important for to to get that and to to feel immersed in that landscape. Um, you can't really do it without them. And art as well um, has been a a, a long term interest of mine, where you can see through art how uh, I suppose concept not only concept but our understanding of space and people changes, and and it does actually link up. A lot to the mathematics of the time um, depicted.
0: Mm, that's right, and that does come out in, in multiple of your chapters, including that on d'Alembert, with the advent of four-dimensional geometry and books like Flatland. That's right. That were very artistic in their presentations.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah. Flatland is one of my favorite novels, actually.
0: So, uh, to now wind down, um, what is another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours?
1: Um, what do you mean, to to, 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 to this book? Or?
0: Yes. So say I'm getting this book as a New Year's present to a mathematician. What would be a good accompanying book or film or website or other oh, piece? Yes.
1: Um, oh, there are lots of films of mathematics. Uh, well, they're not necessarily films of mathematics. I don't actually particularly like the films about mathematicians because they're usually inaccurate. Uh, but, I feel the uh, same way often. Yeah, yeah. uh, But I do like um, films, you know, science fiction films. I do particularly like um, Interstellar, actually. That is one of my favorite movies. Uh, There is a lot there that is perhaps sort of somehow similar to this, um, you know, The Somnium by Kepler.
0: that That is a great point, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I remember being thrilled by the, the, the music, the sound quality, and the visuals in that film, even as I had some reservations about the way the science was communicated and told. But it was absolutely a stunning piece of, of art.
1: Yes, yes. And I, I, I sort of liked, liked it because it, it did have something very surprising to me that I didn't expect, uh, which I think every great theorem actually contains, you know, so that's why I like it, you know, it sort of has a little bit of, you know, mathematics in all kinds of different guises. Um, It's true. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely uh, one of my favorite films.
0: Very cool. And so now to ask the traditional closing question of New Books uh, Network, what are you working on now?
1: So I'm working on a book. I'm not going to give you a title, though. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) But it's going to be... um, slightly different. It's not going to take necessarily, um, it's going to, it, it, it will have a lot of historical data as well, but, but it, will, it will be more about people, um, and it's going to be aimed at people who want to really look at mathematics um, in a slightly different way. So that they, it will be based around different um, objects. But those objects are not necessarily going to be, you know, physical objects. They might be uh, constructs,
0: Mathematical concepts.
1: Yes, concepts and yes, and and sort of constructs. So I will ask people to sort of look at that at such such an object, you know, from different angles. Um, so I suppose a little bit uh, like meditation on some objects. I'm not yet sure. Um, how many chapters is going to be but it's not going to be based about the calendar year
0: okay I will watch out for it thank you you're very welcome so I've been talking with uh, Snezhana Lawrence about her book A New Year's Present from a Mathematician published this year by CRC Press Snezhana thank you so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics
1: thank you very much for inviting me Corey. all the very best and have a very good e- a very good uh, New Year
0: to you too Okay.